0: Or it could be your recreational pilot certificate, your sport pilot certificate, your instrument rating, commercial certificate, whichever examination that you're going to be taking with the FAA. Every time you do it, there is a set of standards that is published for each one. And these are called the practical test standards. In short, we call them the PTS. Now, today we're going to be talking about the most common one that we uh, do here at Skyline. And it's called the private pilot practical test standards for the airplane single engine land, meaning that we land on the ground, the land. So if it was single engine C, that would mean that we're actually a float plane pilot. We're uh, trained to land on water. So the publication number, you can go to the FAA's website and pull this up. It's FAA-S-8081-14A as in alpha. Okay. So we're going to talk about that one today. So if you'd like to go ahead and download that and come back and um, restart the, uh, the the thing. We can do that. We start the podcast. We can do that. But let's go on. Let's talk about this book and exactly how we use this book and what it means to you as a pilot. Okay, so talk about this book. This book was established by the FAA to give a set of standards for the pilot certification process. Uh, FAA inspectors and designated pilot examiners, they use these practical tests and they have to comply with these standards while they're giving your, your examination. Uh, flight instructors and applicants should also be familiar with these standards. From day one, you should be talking about these practical test standards that you have. And that way it'll give us a, a better idea of how your actual final examination, what we call your check ride, how that's going to go. Now, uh, if you're currently uh, one of our students, uh, you should have already experience with the practical test standards. And if you're a student from another flight school who's listening in, or if you're an independent study uh, student, with not with the school, just an independent instructor, uh, if you haven't heard of the practical test standards, please make sure that you do ask your flight instructor about these standards, so that way you can be prepared on your big day. Now... These practical test standards, if you actually take it and start reading it, it tells you exactly how you started, what you have to get, uh, what you have to, uh, the standards that you have to meet during the test, how it begins, what you have to know, the uh, just very very numerous things that constitute the check ride or the end test in its entirety. So if we turn to page 3, right as you first open up the practical test standards, you turn to page 3, right in the middle of the page it says, These practical test standards are based on the following references. So everything here is basically what you should be learning in your private pilot class. Now this is a lot of text. You stack this up, it is huge. It's big. We, of course, don't teach you everything in these books. Your training course would take years if we taught you everything in these books. Maybe not years, but it would definitely take more than the three or four months, which is an average training time here at Skyline, to get your private pilot certification. But we pick out bits and pieces of these books. You don't necessarily need to know every single page, just bits and pieces, because some of these books refer to all a big, wide range of items. Like, for instance, the... Uh, aeronautical Information Manual has things in there about helicopters, so if you're not going to be flying helicopters, there's no need for you to look at the helicopter section of the Aeronautical Information Manual, and so on and so on. If we turn the page over to look at page 5, we start off your check ride uh, Once the, the examiner looks at your credentials and makes sure that you're ready to go, he'll start off the check ride with something called Special Emphasis Areas. And these special emphasis areas, this is going to be the starting point of the check ride. And the examiner is really going to be able to kind of use your responses to these questions to kind of see really how you're going to be doing on your check ride. So if you're short of the information in, in these 11 items here for your private pilot examination, you're probably not going to do well with the rest of your check, right? So I really highly advise that you go over these special emphasis areas. We're going to talk about each one and see how it relates to you. Uh, it says here, The examiner shall place special emphasis upon areas of aircraft operations considered critical to flight safety. Among these are, number one, positive aircraft control. The examiner will ask you, what do you mean? What does it mean for you to have positive aircraft control? Well, uh, some people find it very difficult to answer this question. And the way, whenever I try to answer a question I don't know it, I try to relook at the question in a different way. Like for instance, what if I didn't have positive aircraft control? What if I had negative aircraft control? What would the airplane just be flying out of there? You know, would it be flying and careening, and you know, be un- unusual attitudes and climbing, and descending, and, you know, swirling to the left? Well, yeah, it would be. So positive aircraft control means that you're able to maintain altitude. You're able to maintain heading. You're able to maintain a coordinated turn. You're able to maintain airspeed. That's positive aircraft control. You are flying this airplane like you're supposed to be flying this airplane. What we like to call the mastery is actually going to see this word in the practical test standards showing mastery of the aircraft. The next one is, uh, number two, is called procedures for positive exchange of flight controls. We have to know who is flying this airplane, okay? And when we exchange flight controls, it's a very simple three-step process. For instance, if, I, if you're the student and I'm the instructor and I want to give you the controls, I'm going to say, student, your controls. And you'll look at me and you'll say, instructor, your controls. And I'll look back at you and I'll say, your controls. And I will release and you will grab. And that's positive exchange of flight controls. It's not just, here, take the stick. Okay, we don't do it like that. That is not the way we do it. It is not proper. You have to make sure that you know who is flying the airplane, okay? Stall spin awareness is number three. When we talk about stall spin awareness, what you're going to be looking at um, on this particular thing is, uh, this particular subject area, is whether or not you understand, first, if the airplane is in a stall condition, And second, if it does stall and spin, how to get out of the spin, okay? Because this is like every pilot's worst nightmare. We don't want to stall, and we don't want to go into a spin. So if I ask you about a spin, you can say, well, as long as I don't stall, I won't spin, and if I asked you about the three kind of signs that, uh, what, that, that's telling me about a stall or the, the, the items that you need to know, which there's three ways that you can know you're about to stall. But uh, things you would want to talk about with examiner is most stalls happen on the base to final turn or somewhere in the pattern uh, during approach or uh, during your takeoff procedure, which we refer to as the approach and departure stalls or more commonly known as the power on and power off stall. So when we talk about a stall, you want to tell the examiner things like uh, I know I'm about to stall when I hear the stall warning horn or uh, uh, visually see the stall warning light, depends on what type of airplane you're flying. All of our airplanes here at Skyline have a stall warning horn, so it's very audible and it's very loud. The next thing you're going to experience is a buffet control. You're going to have a buffet. You're going to feel this this turbulent air as it goes across your airfoil and it's going to kind of shake a little bit. You're going to feel a little bit of buffet and you're going to know you're about to stall. The third thing is going to be a mushiness of the controls. Of course, if you've done your training already, if you can have your instructor demonstrate, or if your instructor would like, if you'd like uh, your instructor to let you have the controls and show you but right at the stall you can hold this thing this aircraft right at the stall you can go full control left right forward back full rudder left and right and the airplane will not move off its heading okay and we know this uh, is uh, right before the stall because the controls are ineffective okay and uh, the spin of course awareness you would have to know the spin recovery technique uh, in the Cessna aircraft that we use, the Cessna 172, as well defined in your book, the uh, spin recovery is going to be power off, identify the direction of rotation, apply full rudder in the opposite rotation, brisk forward elevator to break the stall, and then <coughs> excuse me, and then uh, let off your rudder when the spin stops. That way, you won't make a spin back in the opposite direction and recover from the dive. So there you go, very easily committed from my memory. I may have. Uh, you know, change some words around there, but that's the recovery procedure, and you need to have it committed to memory just like I have. Collision avoidance is another one, that's number four on our list. And collision avoidance means you don't want to hit someone, okay, and that's on the air or in the ground. So they're going to ask you questions about, uh, you know, if you plan on taxiing into someone, how do you know you're not going to taxi into something? You know, if you get worried about it on the ground, if you think for one second there that you're going to hit something, I would simply just stop the airplane, cut the engine off, get out of the airplane, get the tow bar out, and move the airplane where you need to have the airplane. Don't try to... Uh, to drive this thing like a car, because you remember, your car does not have wings. You're not used to seeing things way out there on each side. It's a 36-foot wingspan that this airplane has. So roughly you have about 18 18 foot on each side of you. So if you don't think you're at least 25 or 30 foot away from an object, just get out of the airplane, stop the airplane, don't try to maneuver into areas where you think you may actually hit something. Now in flight, of course, we have our collision avoidance rules for in-flight. The aircraft on the right always has a right-of-way. And one exception is if you're overtaking a slower airplane, then you'll pass on the right and the aircraft on the left has a right-of-way. So that's the only exception to that rule. If you're coming in for a landing, the airplane on the, uh, the aircraft on the, uh, the lower aircraft has the right-of-way. And the least maneuverable aircraft always has the right-of-way. For instance, helicopters uh, would have a right-of-way over airplanes because helicopters are not as maneuverable as uh, airplanes okay uh and of course the one aircraft that has uh that has uh, that trumps all other airplanes as far as right ways and collision avoidance is what do you know what it is well it's an aircraft in distress okay so if you have an emergency and air force one is in the pattern then you're going to take precedence you're going to be number one Uh, precedence to the president, okay? So you're going to be number one for landing on that particular uh, instance right there. So if you're going to have an emergency, that trumps everything for collision avoidance. Uh, Remember that when you are using collision avoidance as far as scanning for traffic, the textbook says, and the FAA wants you to say, 10 degree short scan segments of the windscreen and that's what they want to see the windshield out in front of you we call it a windscreen whatever you want to call it is fine but the proper terminology is windscreen and you want to make sure you scan in 10 degree segments you can see the slightest bit of movement if you do that if you try to move your eyes very quickly you're not going to pick up as much if you do it the proper way which is 10 degree segments now wake turbulence avoidance which is number five on our list To me, this has always been an easy thing. Some people struggle with it, but I kind of picture a cup with inside of another cup. So if you have like two coffee cups, or actually pick a cup with a V-shape that you can put two cups inside of one another. You probably couldn't put two coffee cups. Of course, I'm talking about a a Styrofoam coffee cup, not a, a glass one. But you put two cups in the middle. Maybe even a smaller cup on the inside of the bigger cup. But if you look at the profile from the outside edge of these cups, the big cup that's on the outside, that's the flight path of the big airplane. So if you look at the profile of that cup, as the airplane comes in and he lands, then the, the little bitty cup inside, or the smaller cup inside, his profile is smaller. So if you trace, a, uh, trace the trajectory, ooh, that's a tongue twister there. If you do that, you're going to land in front of... Of that airplane, you want to land beyond where his nose wheel touched down, because when that nose wheel touched down, what happens? That airplane stops producing lift at that moment. Okay. Now, if you look at the opposite of the profile, the little bitty cup is behind the big cup on the other end of the profile, the left-hand side of the cup. So, if the if the big airplane or the big cup, if it takes off first, you want to take off before it and climb above it. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, Todd, my 172, I don't think it's going to fly, outfly, and outmaneuver, and outclimb a 757. Well, you know what? You're absolutely right. But I want you to understand this, too. We're not expecting you to climb, outclimb a 757, but his takeoff roll is going to be several thousand feet, where your takeoff roll is going to be about 700 to 900 feet. You're also going to be climbing out to about a 50-foot mark, 100-foot mark, while making a turn-on course, they're already well down the way. By the time he gets to the 50-foot mark, he's going to be several thousand feet down the runway. There should not be any issues with you taking off behind a big airplane. And always remember, textbook says, and also this is a test on your written examination, the most dangerous uh, winds that we could have while landing behind a big airplane is a light quartering tailwind because it's going to move those wingtip vortices right in your path, and it's going to throw you for a big loop, maybe even make you crash, so it's very important that we understand um, wake turbulence, okay? Number six, land and hold short operations, L-A-H-S-O, we also call it Lasso. Lasso operations can be found in a couple different places. You can find it in your airport facility directory, airport facility directory, the AFD, that's your little green paperback book. And that is usually found in the back of that book where it has the taxi diagrams, the safe taxi diagrams. And the lasso procedures, if they're at that airport, you will see the markings on the runway for that. Now, that used to be, in the old days, if you're an old-timer listening to this, you remember in the airport facility directory, there was a specific section that said lasso operations. It doesn't exist in there anymore. That's old stuff, and the new AFDs do not have that in there. What do you need to know about lasso operations? If you're given one as a student pilot or a private pilot, you don't have to accept it, but they may inconvenience you if you don't. And if you feel like you're not going to be able to stop short of the mark of the of the lasso, you want to make sure that you advise ATC of that. That's what you want to know about lasso operations. So number eight is uh, contr- uh, I'm sorry, number seven, uh, runway incursion avoidance. Here, let me just let me just give you eleven different items here. The eleven items I like to try to memorize. When we're talking about these particular uh, runway incursions, uh, during your pre-flight planning, study the airport airport layout, uh, review the airport diagram and taxi routes know when the either if you're on an uncontrolled field it doesn't matter if you're on a controlled tower field you want to make sure that you look at the taxi directions given by the ground controller if applicable make sure you know how to get to your runway that you've been assigned or if you're at an uncontrolled field make sure you know how to get to the runway that you want to take off from okay it's very very important that you look and you don't taxi in the wrong spot Uh, i see people all the time making uh, kind of silly moves they'll go out to taxi and uh, I'll be listening to the radio and I hear an aircraft uh, just landed on run on a uh, runway and they're about to taxi in and there's only one taxiway here at Columbus uh, that leads out to the uh what we call the hill, or where Skyline Columbus is, Taxiway Delta. I'll hear an airplane landing on Runway 24, and the, the student or renter that I'm checking out, uh, or applicant that I'm flying with, will take the Taxiway Delta and start taxiing out the Runway 24. And I, and I ask them, I say, look, I would advise you to hold your position right here. And they say, why? And I say, well, just give it a second, and about a minute will pass, and here's the airplane clearing the runway on Taxiway Delta taxiing towards us. And Taxiway Delta is not big enough for a Learjet and a Cessna 172 to accompany it at the same time. So somebody's going to have to get out of the way. Somebody's going to have to do something. So just listen out and also look at your taxiway. And you can see basically what's happening visually in your head. You can kind of hear the aircraft's calling, see where they're at on the air, and hear where they're at, and, and put it mentally where they're at on that airport taxi diagram. Make sure you complete as many checklist items as possible before taxiing or while holding short. You really don't want to be doing things like I said. While you are taxiing. While you are taxiing, you should be only doing one thing. Can you guess? That's right. Taxiing. That's what you should be doing only. Strive for clear and unambiguous pilot controller communication. It's very important that you read back in full all clearances involving active runway crossing, hold short, taxi into position, and uh, hold instructions. You should make sure that you clarify every bit of this with the controller. Sometimes you may have an airplane that's... Uh, different call signs, or you know, uh, excuse me, that's, that their call signs are very uh, identical. Or maybe one airplane's a Cessna, and the other plane's a Cessna, and the controller gets confused. and He just says Cessna, taxi out the runway. You know, which Cessna? You get be very clear about what's going on. You know, while taxiing, like I said before, uh, when we're talking about the the taxi charts, know your price, uh, precise location, and concentrate on your primary responsibilities. Uh, don't become absorbed in other tasks or conversation while the aircraft is moving. Remember, even the private pilot should have a level of professionalism. Airliners, they have something called the static flight deck, static cockpit, if you want to call it. They don't say anything not dealing with aviation and that airplane, specifically that flight, from the time they get in to the time they reach 10,000 feet MSL. Okay? You should exercise the same amount of safety and security of you and your passengers. If you're unsure of your position on the airport, please just stop the airplane and ask for assistance. Don't keep taxing around. Uh, It's very, very important that you don't hit anybody else. Again, what are we talking about? Runway incursions, okay? You can get something called a progressive taxi. That will help you out a lot. When at all possible, if you're in a run-up area or waiting for a clearance, position your aircraft so you can see landing aircraft coming in okay do you know how many times a day pilots land on the wrong air on the uh, wrong runway I've seen so many air uh, pilots myself I they say oh, I'm landing on runway 27 and I'll be looking at runway 27 and the next thing I know I hear an airplane touching down on runway nine which is the opposite direction and it, it is kind of foolish um, but uh, if you had your airplane position correctly uh, you should be able to see the aircraft that's on final and uh, you may also should be able to see the airplane down the runway. So position yourself correctly so you can see things going on. Make sure that you monitor the appropriate radio frequencies. Don't change frequencies unless you've been told to. Unless you're getting ready to depart off a control tower field, then it's okay to switch from ground to tower. Now, are some airports different? Yes. You won't know that unless you fly there. If you're going to go up to Peachtree, cab. That's KPDK up in northeast Atlanta. You want to stay on the ground frequency until they tell you to go to tower. That's just a little unspoken rule they have up there. It's not written down anywhere. But uh, if if you go up there, just know that Todd told you about that, and it'll kind of save you some embarrassment. After you land, make sure you stay on the tower frequency until instructed to change frequencies, because, you know, it tower is going to have some some control over the runway that the ground control is not going to have control over so you need to make sure that you're talking to the same person that you need to be talking to sometimes it's the same person like in columbus if you're going to take off uh, you're going to taxi out uh, for takeoff the ground controller normally at 99.9 percent of the time is your tower controller okay so just make sure even if it's at columbus you don't switch over until you've been told to Uh, If you're going to taxi out, make sure other people can see you. So if you need to, use as much as your exterior lights as possible. But just remember, aircraft owners and pilots alone, especially here at the flight school, uh, every time you use something on the airplane, it does require maintenance on it. So if you don't need it, don't use it. At Skyline Columbus here, we are not the airlines. Do not taxi during the daytime with your taxi light and airliners do that because not of a regulation they do it because their operational guidelines for their company instructs them to do that so for here for us save our sixty-five dollar taxi lights if you would please and don't burn the lights during the daytime unless you need it now there is the thing we call operational lights on that involves about keeping your landing lights on 10 miles from the airport that's at the pilots discretion if you're uh, leaving a con- un- uh, controlled field and there's nobody inbound, I don't know. Do you need it? Well, not, that's why it's called pilot's discretion. But supposedly, according to the FAA, their studies do say that it is better to keep the taxi light on, or the, excuse me, the landing light on, until you're because uh, you actually take off with the landing light and land with the landing light during the daytime to bet to help other people better see you. So, what are we talking about? Talking about helping others to see. Your aircraft, okay. Report deteriorated or confusing airport marking signs and lighting to the airport, or you can just tell the school here. We'll, we'll uh, relay it to the FAA uh, or any type of confusion or erroneous airport diagrams, instructions. Let us know. We'll take care of it. We'll push it along uh, to the correct person. Make sure you understand the required procedures if you fly in and out of an airport where lasso is in effect. Uh, The closest one around here, really, I know that most of our students do fly to that have lasso, is Birmingham. So if you go to Birmingham, they do have a lasso procedure there on runway 36, I believe. I don't have it in front of me, so I wouldn't be able to tell you precisely. But that that should be exactly, you know, uh, just look in the book and everything will be fine. Okay, well, that's enough about that. Let's talk about controlled flight into terrain. Well, controlled flight into terrain means that you flew a perfectly good operating airplane into something. Could be a body of water. It Could be the side of a mountain. Uh, you 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 landed prematurely, but you 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 basically flew it right into an object. So how can you avoid doing this? Well, the biggest way to do this is one, uh, don't come complacent in the in the in the cockpit, and two, plan your every move in the airplane. Plan your every move. Uh, most time the sea fit happens in mountainous areas. You see that happen a pretty good bit. They'll take off in a airplane. will take off in a valley uh, arena, and they'll take off, and they'll impact the side of the mountain because they don't plan their escape route out of the valley. Okay? So plan your every single move. Know what you're going to do. If you have an airplane that has an autopilot on it, if your autopilot cuts off, is there some way that the airplane warns you that the autopilot is cut off? Are you going to just start a gradual descent, and you're in there reading your magazine, being complacent, listening to your iPod, looking at your heads-down display? Okay? And next thing you know, you're skipping across the top of pine trees. That's a pretty good, stupid pilot trick, and don't be caught doing it. Not good. Aeronautical decision-making. When does aeronautical decision-making start? It starts the minute, the second that the idea of a flight pops into your head. That's when it starts. And it ends when the airplane is safe in the hangar. So your aeronautical decision-making that you do should control every aspect. You should have control of every single aspect of the time that you think about flying to the time you get back from flying. Okay? Remember this. It's very, very important. You can assess risk. You are going to take risk as a pilot, flying in adverse weather, flying in rain, flying a different type of aircraft you've never flown flown before. But it's called risk assessment. You are assessing it. You are using your aeronautical decision-making skills to make you a safer and better pilot. Now, ADM is a pretty big subject. Where is the best place to go to learn about ADM? I think... The Aeronautical Information Manual is a great place to talk about ADM. It has some pretty good write-ups in there about aeronautical decision making, and I would go there. Uh, it's one of the latter chapters. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, maybe I'll do a special podcast just on that, so you guys can and girls can can get the whole drift of ADM. Checklist usage is number ten. Uh, I don't know what else more to say about checklists. Just make sure if you're on your check ride, you find some way to affix that checklist to your hand. Uh, Try not to let it come away from your hand too long. If you do anything in the airplane, do your checklist. Okay? How many of you actually really do your climb checklist, your cruise checklist, your descent checklist, your pre-landing checklist? If you're not in the habit of doing it, you need to get in the habit of doing it because checklists, ladies and gentlemen, they save lives, okay? Checklist saves lives. Save lives, okay? Checklist save lives. Other areas deemed appropriate to any phase of the practical test is our last one, which means that basically if you're doing, if you're operating some weird airplane or uh, some specific type thing, they're going to ask you specific questions dealing with that or any phase of the practical test. So, Maybe he'll ask you this at the beginning, which he normally does, or he or she, depending on what type of designated examiner you're using. But it can be broken up throughout the entire phase of the of the check ride. Okay, so uh, it's very good that you understand these, and that's why the the rest of the the check ride should go pretty smoothly if you make it through this, because the rest of it really just talks about the everyday things that you do while flying, weather and whatnot, uh, aerodynamics. Uh, the airspace, national airspace system, and the airplane—it's pretty easy after that. Let's talk about your prerequisites. Your prerequisites to walk into the room with the FAA—you got to at least be 17 years of age. You must be able to read, speak, and write, and understand the English language. Okay? There is an advisory circular out there if you need it. It's AC 60-28. Uh, And that's the English Language skill Standards. They'll be able to help you out if you need guidelines as to whether or not you think you're proficient enough to do this. You must have taken your written test within the past 24 months and have that proof uh, that you've took it when you walked in. You must have uh, completed the required training and obtained the aeronautical experience that's required for the training. You must have a minimum of a third class medical Make sure on the back of that third-class medical, you have your solo and your cross-country endorsement on the back. And you must have your endorsements from your uh, from your instructor certifying that you've given the required, uh, that he's given you, here she's given you the required training in the preceding two calendar months. It used to be 60 days. It's not 60 days anymore. It's two calendar months. Okay, So make sure we understand that, so that sometimes could be a little bit over uh, 60 days. Or nope, it couldn't be less than sixty days. Nope, could not be more. Two calendar months. Yeah, actually, yeah, I think it could. I tell you what, we'll work that out in another podcast on my math. But it could be a little bit over. We know, we both know that. Uh, also, an endorsement certifying that the applicant, if you, if you did not score above a seventy on your first test, um, of course, you'll need uh, an endorsement for each test. That is true. But you'll also need an endorsement saying that. The instructor went over the deficient areas of your test. So if you didn't make 100, if you made 100, you don't need this. But if you didn't make a 100, then you're going to need an endorsement from an instructor saying they went over that test with you. The airplanes are pretty much giving, uh, you should come in our offices and look at the logbooks several times through your training. It's actually on lesson one. You should really actually look at the logbooks itself and see exactly if the airplane's is airworthy. It's part of your syllabus in our uh, Jefferson syllabus that we uh, use here at the school. Uh, the instructor should make sure that you're ready for the test. And the examiner's responsibility uh, is that they shall test you to the greatest extent practicable. Practicable. Uh, for the applicant's core of abilities rather than mere rote enumeration of facts throughout the practical test. What does that mean to you? It means you know what you do and you haven't just memorized things. That's what I like to say here at Skyline, that we don't teach you to pass the practical test. Uh, we teach you to be a pilot. And if you're a good, safe pilot, the practical test should come very easy for you. You know that you've done well on this test when you've Perform the task and areas of operation uh, for that rating salt within the standards. We're going to talk about the standards. You must demonstrate mastery. Here we go. That was that word. Demonstrate mastery of the aircraft. Never seriously in doubt. Okay? If you start doubting yourself in the airplane, that causes for a bust on your check ride, which is uh, a non approval demonstrate satisfactory proficiency and competency within the approved standards. So if you're in air, if you're in cruise flight, we know the standards are plus 100, minus 100 of altitude. You can't go beyond that. You must stay within those standards. Those are the standards that we set forth. De- you must demonstrate sound judgment in what you're doing and show the examiner that you have a lot of single pilot competence in this airplane that you basically could fly this airplane by yourself with with no help from others. And that you have good sound judgment, and you're never seriously in doubt about what you're doing. If there should be some reason that you have to that you have to get a uh, a continuance or a letter of uh, the um, letter of disapproval, uh, certificate of disapproval. Uh, if you on any action, if you lack uh, the corrective, if, if the what I'm trying to say here, let me let me back up here just a minute. If the examiner has to come in and intervene with your flying, you're not going to pass that check ride. Okay, so don't let the examiner have to intervene your flight. What I always tell my students: don't scare the examiner. If you scare him, you're probably not going to pass the test. Fair to use proper and effective visual scanning techniques. Remember, we talked about the ten degrees clearing the windscreen. You definitely need to do that. If they don't see that you're doing this, that's, a, that's a grounds for disapproval. If you exceed tolerances on these maneuvers, is it okay? Yeah, it may be okay. Once, if you let the examiner know, you know, you may say something like, Oh, Todd, come on, get back on your altitude. You know, you talk to yourself out loud. But if you consistently, consistently exceed tolerances, they're, gonna, they're not going to let you pass and the other one is fair to take prompt corrective action when tolerances are exceeded. Like I said before, you see yourself getting outside tolerances, just talk to yourself aloud. Come on, man, get back on there. You get back on that get back on that altitude. Come on, you know. So you've got all this, you know how the check ride's going to start. Well, how do we know what to take into the check ride with us? Cuz you can't walk into the check ride with just uh, with just your check. With just your money for the check ride. So, if you look in your PTS on page 1 IX, there is a applicant's practical test checklist. Everything on this checklist you will need to take into the check ride with you. It is highly recommended that you show up at least an hour prior to your check ride start time. That way, you can get everything set up for the examiner and your instructor can check everything over. To make sure that you have completed everything. Now, if we go over to page, uh, let's see here. Uh, Click right on over to, and we're turning, and we're turning, and we're turning. All right, let's start from the beginning here. Okay. Let's turn over to page 1-1. <laughs> if you read thre- if you read through this all the way to the very end of this practical test standard, you will pass your check ride. Okay? I'm not going to guarantee it, but I'm going to say there's a very extremely high probability in the 90s that you'll pass your check ride if you read this The examiner is going to ask you, have you looked at the practical test standards? If you tell him yes, and you've looked over this, you'll know exactly what he's asking for, and there will be no punches pulled on this check ride. I promise you. Promise you. So if we look at this, the area of operation, pre-flight preparation, the first thing it asks for is tasks, certificates, and documents. Now, in your Jeppesen private pilot kit that you get when you start training here, there is a book in there, and it says your practical test standards study guide. That study guide is broken down exactly like this with the areas of operation section 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So you can actually turn in there to the very first page of that book, look for areas of operation, A, task, certificates, and documents, and it'll tell you exactly what to say on your check ride. So we're giving you all the information, we're giving you all the tools, we're giving you everything that you need to learn how to be a pilot, to be a safe pilot, to be a competent pilot, and to do well on a check ride and set yourself up for success. But you have to come with some, you have to come with, with game on your side, okay? We're here for you, but you're going to need to study this and make it where you can answer these questions outside of an instructor being in the room. So, as far as the check ride, we're pretty much done talking with this podcast because I'm going to let you read over the rest of this. It would take me in a long period of time. I could probably break this down into individual podcasts, which I probably will, one for each section. And I, I think we should do that uh, in the future. But uh, I'm hoping that you got something out of this. I'm hoping that you will be able to walk into your check ride with your practical test standards in hand and you'll be fully prepared to do the very best job that you can on this check ride, and you'll pass it, and I know that you'll walk away with your pilot certificate in hand because we want you to succeed, and we're going to make sure you have all the tools to do this with. If you have any ideas on podcasts in the future, please feel free to email me, Todd, that's T-O-D-D, at com, or simply give us a call, 706 706- 322 I'm here pretty much five days a week, uh, and I'll be able to answer any questions you may have about these podcasts or any future podcasts that may come up. If you have any ideas, please let me know. I uh, very much enjoyed talking with you today, and I hope that you can use this to be very successful. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on the next podcast. Bye-bye.